0: The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording.
1: The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributor
0: and do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community.
1: Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.
1: The quote that's here, I think it's, it's worth reminding you of this quote, it kind of sets the tone for this whole presentation. Where God appears to be demanding revolutionary change, the devil always comes down on the side of the status quo. I think that is just so true. Um, so last month we looked at what I think is the irony of, of, the, of Quaker history in that Quakers, who from the very beginning, were people whose first principle was human equality, that everyone was equal. Everyone had the light within and everyone was equal. That's kind of a first principle. And then they became the first Christian denomination to eliminate slavery from within their ranks and to eliminate slave trading, the first denomination way ahead of any other denomination in the 18th century. And yet by the 19th century, you would think that they, that would naturally lead into being strongly in support of the abolition movement and instead, they resisted it and eventually even closed their doors to abolitionist speakers. So, um, you probably have an idea of what's going to happen when the women's movement becomes <laughs> the next great social reform movement that developed directly out of the abolition movement. Uh, we would think that, that Quakers, being a group that promoted the spiritual equality of men and women way in advance of any other tradition, um, would have seen that women's rights would be naturally falling upon that and that they would have supported it. Well, not necessarily. So, um, I also want to remind you of, I think it's always good to be reminded of the vision, our first vision and the original vision, and this is stated so eloquently by Isaac Pennington, who said, Our life is love and peace and tenderness and bearing one with another and forgiving one another and not laying accusations one against another, but praying one for another and helping one another up with a tender hand. So mind truth and be a good saver in the places where you live, the meek, innocent, tender, righteous life reigning in you, governing over you, and shining through you, in the eyes of all with whom ye converse. I think that's a beautiful description of the Quaker vision and one that I feel in many ways this congregation does embody. But our shadow side, our dark side is that as a whole we don't necessarily embody this or that our uh, life is not always marked by by these qualities. So I had presented last month that I see Quakerism as a prophetic movement. That was its original vision. The early Quaker leaders were prophets. They were social prophets as well as spiritual prophets. It was also an alternative orthodoxy. They were reforming the church in many ways, trying to present the gospel, the original vision of the gospel. And they went against some of the traditional dogma and teaching of the church at the time. But down through time, of course, movements evolve and the movements, radical movements become institutions. And of course that happened with Quakers and it happens with all movements through time. So from being a radical prophetic movement in the 17th century, by the 18th century they were conservative, conformist, everyone looked the same, dressed the same, became quite rigid in their their rules, very exclusive. Um, by the 19th century, things changed again, and they became very divisive and schismatic and fragmented, not, o- not only over theological issues, but over social issues as well, and abolition was one that divided them. So the prophetic stance, just a reminder, because I think this is important for kind of the foundation of, of my whole kind of view of Quaker history that a prophet, that Quakers as a prophetic movement, they stand within that great tradition that begins in the Old Testament of the prophets who are always kind of on the edge of the inside of the institution. And thinking about prophets and power and authority, the prophets often would be folks who had um, spiritual power, but they did not have the authority The authority was with the priests, so there's always this tension throughout scripture between the the prophetic tradition and the priestly tradition because the power resided with the priestly tradition. Jesus came as a prophet, right, and he was opposed by the priestly tradition and the Pharisees' tradition, so there is always this tension between power and, and prophecy. So prophets are both conservative, that is they're loyal to the tradition. Jesus was loyal to his Jewish tradition, but he was willing to break some of the the laws, some of the rules for for a higher law by healing on the Sabbath and, and other things. So prophet is both conservative, loyal to the tradition, and yet liberal and radical at the same time. A prophet also must be educated inside the system. They must know the system really well in order to have the freedom to critique that very system. So prophets rise up within the system, within the movement, and they critique it from within. So a prophet has to know the rules first in order to break the rules for a more essential value. Prophets also expose and topple a group's idols and blind spots. We all have blind spots, everyone does, even Pope Francis and Matt Damon, and prophets will expose those. No, no one sees things perfectly. Uh, even some of the prophets had their blind spots. They, all, they, didn't always, they weren't always consistent. But, and lastly, what does Jesus say about prophets? A prophet is without honor in his or her own hometown, and that is proven to be true across history, and often they're not only without honor, they're often killed. So Jesus was understood as a prophet, and I think the early Quakers kind of followed that tradition. So the Society of Friends in the 19th century is where we left off. Um, Were they a peaceable kingdom as the vision uh, was presented by most historians and even artists? Here is Edward Hicks, one of the first Quaker artists, who also had a lot of opposition from his meeting for even um, thinking that art was something worth doing. Um, He, in his beautiful visions that he basically takes from Isaiah, you also see that there is this ravine, there is this gulf that widens in his paintings as he does very many, many variations of the peaceable kingdom, and that represents the divisions among friends for which he lamented at the time, and that widens and begins to separate, and so you can see that in this great iconic art. So, uh, we talked last month about two of one of my favorite uh, sisters in all of history, heroic Quaker social prophets, who were really empowered by the Quaker faith that they adopted as adults, they were convinced friends, they adopted the Quaker faith and they were empowered by that to work for social change. But they gradually were disillusioned after joining with friends to discover that they weren't actually being supported in their work, even though they originally joined with friends because they were so inspired by reading the journal of John Woolman and the work that was done for anti-slavery earlier. So they became the first abolition agents, the first and uh, two women who spoke publicly about abolition. And that was considered totally scandalous to speak publicly, for a woman to speak publicly. Um, and they recognized very early on that not only were um, african-americans oppressed but they recognized their own oppression as women and they began to speak out on women's rights along with abolition and they're really the two that kind of fused the movements together abolition and women's rights but when they did that it also ended up causing kind of an ideological division within the abolition movement itself because some of the abolition groups did not want to uh... in any way advocate for women's rights they felt that may happen, but that, that's down the road. We've got, to, we've got to work for abolition first, and we can't confuse the issue by working for both at the same time. So some of the groups did uh, include women's rights along with abolition. Others would not touch that issue. So it divided the abolition movement itself. Um, what they realized early on was They were being opposed, violently opposed. Often mobs would like throw stones and rocks. I mean, it was dangerous to be a prophet. Um, They were not not only being um, violently opposed because they were talking about abolition, but because they were women. And here's what Sarah Grimke says. This is back in 1837. She says, we have given great offense on account of our womanhood which seems to be as objectionable as our abolitionism. The whole land seems aroused in discussion of the province of women, and I am glad of it. We are willing to bear the brunt of the storm, and they were, if we can only be the means of making a break in that wall of public opinion which lies right in the way of women's rights, true dignity, honor, and usefulness. So they continued to speak out against uh, abolition and also to bring up the whole issue of women's rights, which was something that was brought up when they spoke at the uh, Pennsylvania Hall. If you remember last week, I said, right after they spoke, it was burned down. And it was not just about abolition, but it was that there were women there speaking. And that just burned the public, it's a pun. So they had to burn down the the building. Sarah Grimke is really the first American woman to write a full-fledged defense of women's equality. And she wrote a book that is entitled Letters on the Equality of Women, written in 1837. She was a Quaker at the time that she's writing this. Um, The first American woman to really write a defense of women's rights and to attack the argument of those who promoted the inferiority of women or the the fact that women had to be subjected to men, which was always based on the Bible, right? And she instead used the Bible as an argument for human equality. Now, it's interesting that Margaret Fell had already done that back in the 17th century, but I don't know that Sarah Grimke was even aware of Margaret Fell's works because Margaret Fell really wasn't that well-known among Quakers back then. Uh, or given the kind of, uh, had any of the reputation that that we have for her today for being such a pioneer in the area of uh, equality of of men and women. So this work, she really addresses all the issues, feminist issues, issues that were only being addressed in, in the 20th century in the late 20th century by feminists. She was already addressing these issues 200 years before that, even though her her. Her writings and her person herself has never been given the kind of recognition I think that she deserves. Um, Here is just an example, this is one of my favorite lines in her letters. She writes, I ask no favors of of my sex. I understand not our claim to equality. I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks and permit us to stand upright on the ground which God has designed for us to occupy, so she was she was a powerful writer, she wasn't the speaker though Angelina was the speaker, the powerful speaker she was the parable pa- powerful writer. she kind of developed the um, the grounds, the philosophical basis, and Angelina was the one who who would speak publicly. Um, she her vision was that God had created men and women as equals and as free agents and that women were only accountable to God, they were not accountable to men who were like seen as the mediators between God and, and women. So her argument was very religious. It was based on biblical, her biblical uh, view, her biblical interpretations and Quaker principles that she learned being in the Society of Friends but then felt that the Society of Friends were not actually carrying out their own principles, that they were, uh, in many ways, denying their own principles. So the other woman that I, I mentioned last month who is probably familiar to most of you is Lucretia Mott. How many of you have like, never heard of Lucretia? Anyone never heard of Lucretia Mott? Oh, one person, okay. Well, I've been in groups where most people haven't heard of Lucretia Mott. Um, she was one of the most powerful preachers in uh, 19th century America as a Quaker, and she was a Hicksite friend. Now, the Hicksites were seen as the more liberal branch at the time, and often it's thought, well, the Hicksites were supportive of women and women's rights. Well, they weren't any more supportive than the Orthodox, so it went both ways. Um, even though she was a recorded minister in the yearly meeting, she faced tremendous opposition from her own yearly meeting, which was Philadelphia. Yearly meeting at the time. Um, And when she preached, her sermons, they often, almost always, would touch on some aspect of abolition or women's rights or human equality. And she is probably the person that launched the women's rights movement. And it started, the first thinking about it as organizing women for suffrage and for women's rights happened in 1840 when there was this world anti-slavery conference in England. And there were all these uh, anti-slavery organizations. Many of the women had their own anti-slavery organizations. And they decided that they would all get together and have this convention in England. So you would think that since women were a large percentage of the abolition movement, they would be invited as delegates to this convention. Well, they were not invited as delegates, but some of the women decided they would go as, as representatives of their organizations anyway, and Lucretia Mott was one who decided to go as a representative. When the women got there, they, they refused to seat them. This is true, it's, it's hard to believe. <laughs> they refused to seat them at the convention, And there was great controversy about it. Some of the men that were part of these organizations were Quakers. Did they support the women? No, they did not. In the end, they were allowed to sit in the balcony with a curtain in front of them. So, but, the fortuitous thing that happened at this convention is that Lucretia Mott met Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Now, you've all heard of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They got together and they started thinking about, you know, something has to be done. They were just so horrified that that this would happen and outraged um, that they said something something had to be done. We need to organize women together. And so they planned uh, together to start a women's organization, uh, an international movement for women's rights. It took eight years before that happened, but in 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention, the first convention of women's rights, took place with Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and a number of other women, a number of other Quaker women as well, but it was a mixed group of Quakers and other uh, denominations. Um, so the um, the sculpture here, have any of you seen this? It's in the Capitol building. Oh, Mike has seen it. Uh, it's an interesting story. There's Lucretia there in the front, and that's uh, Susan B. Anthony, and then Elizabeth Cady Stanton there on, on the left side. That was given to Congress in, I think it was 1921. And it was, uh, the sculpture was created by a woman sculptor, and it was given to Congress, donated, and there was this big ceremony, and it was there in the rotunda for one day, and they moved it to the basement. Oh, wow. This is true. They moved it to the basement. It was there for 76 years. It was 1997 when they finally moved it up from the basement, the crypt, back to the rotunda. And now it's there. You can see it. But that's the story behind it. I mean, it's, it's pretty unbelievable, but that that is true. So obviously... The, the the women's roles were not respected for a very long time before they felt it could actually be up where people could see it. Oh, and the the kind of rough stone in the back represents all the women that were part of the movement that they couldn't make actual sculptures of and all the women in the future that would be a part of the movement. So it's very symbolic. So... uh, Angelina Grimke was not at that first uh, women's rights conference in Seneca Falls. She had kind of retired by that time. But she was in contact with all the women, with uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Maude, and and all the uh, early women suffrage and women's rights activists. And this is a very interesting um, letter she wrote to Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1851, which she says this. The very truths you are now contending for will, in 50 years, be so completely embedded in public opinion that no one needs say one word in their defense, while at the same time, new forms of truth will arise to test the faithfulness of the pioneer minds of that age, and so on eternally. Basically, she's saying that, you know, the arc of the, arc of the moral universe moves towards justice, which is something that Martin Luther King said uh, in the 60s. Um, I think she was a little optimistic about the timeline, though. (laughs) Uh, 50 years, it took actually 70 years before um, the 19th Amendment passed, and all of the women that worked for the right to vote, none of them actually lived, the early uh, women's rights activists, none of them actually lived to vote. So it took 70 years before women received the right to vote, and another 70 years before that, more than that, 100 years before that statue was put in the rotunda in Congress. So it it does take, it takes a long time for attitudes to change, for structures to change, um, for the right side of history to win out, I guess. So another uh, woman that I mentioned last month, too, was Abby Kelly Foster, who was also, she took over, um, when Angelina retired, she was the next uh, uh, female abolition agent, and she spoke all over the country for 40 years on abolition and women's rights, and was a major part of the early women's rights movement. Um, And she was a Quaker, but she resigned from New England Yearly Meeting, in 1841, feeling that they had betrayed their testimony. And one of her um, mottos, um, which I think is very inspiring and motivating, she says, go where you are least wanted, for there you are most needed. Um, That's kind of a prophet's uh, motto. And she was one of the speakers in the Pennsylvania Hall when it was burnt down, she was also there. And she's a a woman that had a huge role in the the whole women's rights movement and the women's suffrage movement, but is not very well known outside of that. She ended up having some disagreements with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they kind of wrote her out of the history of women's suffrage, so she doesn't have much of a part. Um, And the other interesting part of this um, kind of split within the women's suffrage movement, which did split, and... Um, some of the women's suffrage advocates such as Susan B. Anthony and even Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Now, if you, re- if you go back and read some of their, their works, you find that they even had some lingering racism in, in their thoughts that you know they weren't totally consistent. Everyone has their feet of clay. So um, Susan B. Anthony, who also, of course, we know she was a Quaker and is, is the one probably most known for her work in women's suffrage, she had some problems with Frederick Douglass who was an African American who worked for uh, women's suffrage and, um, and just human equality as a whole. He married a white woman and she totally objected to that and, and never respected him because of that. So just to see that you know, everyone has their feet of clay as Mike pointed out. So a couple other women that I want to bring to your attention and see how they related to their their meetings and Society of Friends as a whole. How many of you ever heard of Laura Haviland? Has anyone ever heard of her? Oh, one one person. Haviland, Kansas. You've heard of Haviland, Kansas? It was named after her. But not till later. (laughs) Um, But still while she was living. So she was one of the early uh, Quaker abolitionist who worked on the Underground Railroad, and one of the very few women who have actually left um, a memoir of their work. And she wrote a woman's life work, Labors and Experiences, published in 1881, later. Um, but there's really very little of women's actual writing about their contribution to the Underground Railroad and she is one of the few that really tells about her experiences, because really it was kind of dangerous work, and they kind of wanted to do it more anonymously. But she went around lecturing, and she even went to the South, on um, showing people what the slaves endured. And this one image of her, which I found on the Internet, shows her um, having collected like the chains and irons and things that that were used on the slaves, she would use those kind of as props and trying to help people to understand what the slaves endured. So she collected these from plantations and then used it in her speeches as kind of exhibitions in her lectures. And she lectured all over the South. And she was so notorious that there was actually a bounty on her head, a $3,000 bounty on her head uh, for her capture. So this is a brave woman, brave and courageous woman. What's interesting about her is that she did resign from the Society of Friends. She and her whole family, she was from Michigan originally, and they were part of a large Quaker meeting that they actually started there. But the whole group resigned from the Society of Friends and joined with the Wesleyans. (laughs) (laughs) And what's so interesting about this, now when we think of the Wesleyan church today, it's a church that kind of split off from the Methodists. It was a radical movement back then it split off from the larger Methodist Association because they were the abolitionist uh, segment of Methodism. And they were also um, supported women's right to preach and ordain women at that time. So this was another uh, denomination that arose at this time that was actually more radical than the Quakers. And so she joined with the Wesleyans, but she later returned. The Wesleyan movement today is a very conservative group, but they had very radical roots. So, um, eventually she moved to Kansas, and Haviland, Kansas was named after her, and actually there was a Haviland Friends meeting named after her, even though she had left Friends, but they did welcome her back much later after the war when things attitudes had changed some. Um, and one, Kansas today is the home of Barclay College. You know Barclay College? So that's probably, that's kind of the connection. Okay. So uh, two other social prophets from the great state of Indiana where I just spent the last five years and discovered them there, though they're not very well known in history because they didn't leave journals or any, um, books, or even articles that we know of, but two Indiana social prophets. One was named Dr. Mary Frame Thomas, and the other, Amanda Way. They both lived in Indiana. They were good friends, and they worked together uh, to found the Indiana Women's Rights Association. And what I discovered in living in Indiana, which in rich men were set up in that hometown, town, that, that. But Indiana was actually out there in, in fact in, in, 19th century, century, early 19th century. century. Well, it's not anymore. <laughs> uh, you, you worry about putting like uh, an Obama sign in your, on your, on your uh, lawn. Um, so things have changed there, but at this time it really was the center of abolition. The Underground Railroad went through there. That's where Levi Coffin had his house, where he hid the slaves. So there were a lot of radical abolitionists and women's rights advocates living in, in Indiana at that time. Indiana and Ohio. Cincinnati to Richmond and then up to Canada was kind of the root of the Underground Railroad. Uh, both of these women worked on the Underground Railroad and they were also um, very prominent in, in Richmond at the time and Mary Frane Thomas was actually one of the very first early physicians and the second woman to be admitted to the American Medical Association. Uh, and she Work with her husband, who was also a doctor, and that's actually her sign that was um, I found in online. It was on, in the newspaper at the time, in which she was surgeon, physician, and acku-chair, I think Do Anyone know what acoucheur is? I bet you do. Yeah, yeah. It was midwife. Actually, I met midwife, so that's what a lot of what uh, she did. And her husband, both they were midwives. So. She, um, she was often opposed, and she really struggled to get respected as, as a physician because women were not expected to do, that was men's work, it took her a long time before she was respected as a physician. Um, she was often called a strong-minded woman, now we would think that maybe that would be kind of a designation of respect, but it was not, <laughs> it was not. Um, it meant that you know she was being aggressive, too aggressive, uh, in the worst way possible, masculine way for a woman. So she had you know she had a lot of opposition. Towards the end of her life, she finally was able to get the respect and acknowledged as a doctor and was admitted to MA, uh, M-A, AMA, but it, it took a while. So. Uh, Amanda Way is really interesting because she eventually came out to out west and died in California. Um, she, in 1905, addressed the National American Women's Suffrage Association in Portland, Oregon. And here uh, is a picture of those delegates. Susan B. Anthony was there. So she was a very well known in her time. And well, actually when she died in California, there were obituaries of her across, across the country in newspapers. And that's really how we know about her today because she didn't actually leave any writings. Um, And I've tried to do some research on her and find out more about her and there is some allusion to the fact that as she moved westward, she uh, settled in Idaho Idaho for a while and there's some allusion to the fact that she may have even started a friend's meeting there. But I haven't been able to kind of verify uh, that yet. But um, eventually she did settle in California but was very well-known in, in, in the West, and I think that we should know who she is today since she had some connections even with Portland, Oregon. Oh, Abigail, Abigail Dunaway was also there at that, and she was a friend of hers, so those of you who know a bit about that history will know that. Okay, so Quakers and women's equality, let's look at the difference between theory and practice in the 19th century. So, women were more than half of those who ministered in all Quaker meetings for worship. They were elders and they were overseers in local meetings. So, they did have that much uh, responsibility and those kinds of roles. But the general meeting for governance, which back then was called the meeting for sufferings, we might call it kind of the administrative committee, was exclusively male until 1898. So, Society of Friends, as a body, did not provide support for women's suffrage, a movement whose objectives closely paralleled their own historical principles. Again, the, the great irony there. Um, and most of my uh, research has been in, um, in Britain Yearly Meeting, that was then called London Yearly Meeting, So, because they had never divided, so it's easier to kind of look at this one overall meeting that to see how the different yearly meetings reacted and and they reacted somewhat differently but on the whole most of the uh, institutions of Quakerism did not support women's uh, right to vote now you would think that would be just a natural thing for them to do but but they did not Uh, Quakers as a whole both the Hicksite and the Orthodox were either kind of apathetic or they actively opposed women's suffrage and and this despite the fact that in England, London Yearly Meeting at the turn of the century, 1900, they were kind of evolving from being very evangelical to being liberal. And that happened very rapidly. But even as they moved into a more liberal theology, they were still opposed to women's right to vote. So theological liberalism doesn't necessarily equate with political or social liberalism. So, some of the uh, attitudes in this period of time, which was the Victorian period, so there was a stark contrast between the Quaker ideal of full gender equality and the realities of the powerlessness for most nineteenth century Quaker women. They had no political rights, just like other women and and they began to recognize that they didn't and wanted to do something about it. But many in Quaker leadership, both male and female, were alarmed by what they perceived as this dangerous wave of radical feminism. Uh, Feminists at that time, they were called witches and demonic. I mean, the the kind of opposition they face is is hard to believe. Um, You'll find in Quaker periodicals, actually, anti-suffrage harangues. Um, And here's a quote from one article that I read. It said, the subjection of the female to male is a universal law. This is written by a Quaker in what was then considered a fairly progressive journal. Um, And then one writer said this, this is 1870. One writer warned that since friends women had special spiritual privileges and superior educations, and they did have probably, they were probably more highly educated than the average woman, uh, but they didn't have college, ed- they, they didn't have higher education, uh, they might look favorably on women's suffrage and thus be inclined to support a program of agitation and legislation that would violate the immutable laws of nature. Okay. Written in the Friends Quarterly Examiner in 1870. So there were some men, I don't want to give you an idea that all the men were opposed. There were some men that that took up the cause of women's suffrage, one was John Wilhelm Roundtree, who was one of the early reformers from England. Uh, In 1893, he complained that the assembled yearly meeting of male friends had spent, this is a direct quote, 25 minutes debating whether the women should be temporarily admitted to the men's meeting. It was Quaker caution and love of detail running to seed. He said, "The spectacle was not inspiring." So those are his words. And some of you may have been at meetings like that. <laughs> okay. So a little more on the ideal versus action. See, there, there was strong opposition, even by women in the broader culture, to women's suffrage. Here's a poster. No votes for women. This was made up of the women's anti-suffrage movement. I mean, it was a large movement of women who were against having the vote for themselves. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to believe, but, but that happened. So in, among British friends, in 1898, British friends finally approved equality for women in business meetings and appointment to the meetings for sufferings, 1898. Uh, but... Nevertheless, Quakers as a body still did not actually support the cause of suffrage. They said, well, it's up to each person to make up their own mind, but the Quakers as a body would not support it. Um, And many friends continued to deny any connection between spiritual equality and political and social equality. One of the strongest voices for the the women's anti-suffrage movement was a Quaker woman. Her name was Carolyn Stephen. I don't know if you know that name, but she's well known for writing uh, books on Quaker worship, wonderful writings on Quaker worship, but she herself, um, who was actually the aunt of Virginia Woolf, (laughs) she herself was um, a very fervent anti-suffragist and was part of the women's anti-suffrage movement. So the ironies of history, it just kind of blows you away sometimes. So, okay, I want to leave some time for questions and comments, uh, I've got a lot of other slides, but I'm going to have to maybe skip over that one. But one other woman I wanted to bring to your attention is Hannah Whiteall Smith. Now, some of you may know her. Um, I've done a lot of research and writing on her. I found her absolutely fascinating. Um, she was born in Philadelphia, birthright friend. Philadelphia Yearly Meeting was raised in Friends Uh, Society of Friends, had a wonderful family, she never had any real difficulty with uh, the beliefs of Friends, but at the time when she was becoming of age as a young woman, she felt that Philadelphia Friends were just a little too narrow and exclusive. So she left, she resigned, she and her husband both in their early twenties, caused split in the family for a while, but then there was reconciliation. And for some 25 years, she was involved in the holiness movement. She was actually a celebrity preacher. She wrote a book called Christian Secret of a Happy Life, and many people have read that. It's very popular among evangelicals who present her as um, a woman who represents the subordination of of the wife to the husband, which totally, you will never find that anywhere in her writings. She was actually a, a radical feminist very early on, but no one knows that. Um, and she not only was a feminist, she was a universalist. She believed that God would restore everyone, everyone would be saved. And yet, she wrote this Christian Secret Happy Life, which is kind of an evangelical classic. Um, but so interesting about her is that she was strong, strongly uh, an advocate for women's rights. She was in the temperance movement, but she saw that as a movement to empower women, and that helped give women a voice, and, Uh, give them some leadership training so they could speak publicly. This is a quote from her. This is in 1868. This is before she even wrote The Christian Secret. She says, I believe God has made me a pioneer so that I do not expect much sympathy or understanding as I go along. And the breaking through of hedges and fences and stone walls is not a very pleasant path. I can assure thee, but it is my nature. I cannot help it. I mean, she, was, she had the prophetic spirit, and that's what she was called to do. But as she traveled around and was part of the, the Methodist, and I think she was part of the Plymouth Brethren, For even she tried these different um, spiritual organizations, none was really satisfactory, and she realized in her, deep in her heart she really was Quaker, she was a friend. And so she tried to um, reapply for admission to uh, the Friends Church. And she applied in uh, Indiana Yearly Meeting, um, which by the 1870s, it was still considered the progressive Yearly Meeting at the time. She applied for membership there. She knew, she was well known. Her book had been published. She was really well known, kind of, she was a celebrity, household word. They turned her down. They did not accept her for membership because she was a universalist. Uh, Maybe because of her feminism too, but I'm I'm not sure about that. It took her five years before she was finally accepted for membership in Baltimore Yearly Meeting, and I think only because her sister was a weighty friend there that she was accepted. Two years later, she moved to England, and and then it was kind of a moot point. I don't know if she ever resigned from friends. I don't think she ever did. Uh, She continued to see herself as a friend, and she was always identified as a Quaker, as the Quaker Quaker preacher, wore Quaker gray, and that was her identity. So um, there's a lot of quotes I have from her, but this is the only one I'm going to share with you. In the end, she saw herself as, as a freelance. That's how she kind of identified herself. And here's, here's what she says, and this is in her autobiography that she writes much later in, in 1903. She says, I've always rather enjoyed being considered a heretic, and I've never wanted to be endorsed by anyone. I have felt that to be endorsed was to be bound, and that it was better for me at least to be a freelance with no hindrances to my absolute mental and spiritual freedom. So that's how she kind of resolved all the tensions within herself and she remained a freelance. Um, When she did join with Baltimore Yearly Meeting, they actually uh, asked her if she would like to be recorded. I mean, she was already had this reputation as as a brilliant preacher, (laughs) popular preacher. She said, no, thank you, <laughs> because she felt that that would restrict her and limit her. So she, she uh, actually did not ever get recorded. So as I mentioned before, it's always the prophet's dilemma, whether to stay or whether to leave, a dilemma that you are facing as a prophetic congregation, as a movement. Um, And looking at these different women that that I've been studying, and there are many others, these are just some of the major figures that that I've kind of looked at to see how do they resolve the tension within their own yearly meetings. Um, Lucretia Mott, who is the mother of the women's rights movement, absolutely said, stay. Do not leave your meeting. And in the book called Mothers of Feminism, which is kind of a classic study by Margaret Hope Bacon on on women in the Quaker movement. She doesn't deal with, she, she um, brings to light the, the reforms and all the activities of these women, but she doesn't talk about their relationship to their, their meetings, or the yearly meeting as a whole, the institution. But one place she says this, this is the only place where she really kind of touches on that, and she says this about Lucretia Mott. She said, she maintained her membership in the Society of Friends precariously, and as a result, she profoundly affected its direction. So she felt called to stay in the meeting, to be a change agent within her meeting, within Philadelphia, meeting as a whole, even though there were many people that, that tried to have her disowned, but she was never, they were never able to accomplish that, partly because her own meeting, Supported her. She had her own meeting, which was Cherry Street meeting in Philadelphia, supported her and she had a network of support. Her family, her husband, and a strong network of support that I think enabled her to stay within friends for her whole lifetime despite the tensions and despite all the opposition that, that she had to face. She counseled Abby Kelly Foster Who She kind of mentored her not to leave, but Abby felt that she had to leave. And she also felt, um, and I I found this in some of her writings, that radicals who left meetings became, quote, narrow. That's what she said. So, but of all the women that, that I've looked at and that I've brought to your attention this afternoon, she's the only one that stayed. But some of them who did leave returned. So the Grimke sisters... They were actually disowned. Now, they were, they were beginning to be marginalized within Quakerism, and they could see, they knew that it was coming, that at some point, they probably would be disowned. Um, and then Angelina married a non-Quaker, so that, technically, she was disowned. But um, Sarah was disowned just for te- uh, attending the wedding of her sister, so they just wanted to find a technical reason to disown her. So, She didn't really, they they didn't really have have a choice in the matter, though they definitely felt that they were becoming marginalized within the early meeting. Abby Kelly Foster resigned, though she said that the friend's principles had taken deep root in my heart, and she, kind of like Hannah, always kind of saw herself as a Quaker and as one who was acting on Quaker principles, but she never did return. Uh, Laura Haviland, as they said, left. She left in 1839, joined with the Wesleyans, but 33 years later she returned and a Quaker town was named after her. Uh, Mary Frank Thomas and Amanda Way, both of them actually left for a time and joined with the Methodists in Richmond, Indiana, who at that time must have been more progressive than they felt that the Quakers were. But eventually, I think they both returned. I know Amanda Way returned. I think that Mary Frame Thomas may have returned as well. The other interesting thing about these two women was that uh, Thomas was actually a Hicksite, and Way was Orthodox, and yet they worked together. That was rare. That did not happen very often. But these two women who worked together to establish the Indiana Women's Rights Association and worked together on the Underground Railroad, one was Hicksite and one was Orthodox. But they both left and joined with the Methodists for a while. Uh, Susan B. Anthony, I didn't, we just touched on her. Um, she also left and eventually joined with the Unitarians. But apparently she was never actually disowned. She still had membership in France. I, I don't know how that worked, but she herself basically became a Unitarian. And then Hannah Whitele-Smith, who I mentioned, uh, left, tried to rejoin, was turned down, eventually she was approved, but moved to England and kind of became a Quaker freelance. So I have two other slides that I want to show you. Um, I talked to some people that I knew and asked them you know what did they see as the dark side of Quakerism and so I have two quotes, one from an evangelical friend who left and one from an unprogrammed friend who has remained even though they both have some grievances with Quakers. So this is from a, a formal evangelical friend who, uh, who was a convinced friend, was with friends for a while and then left. She says, since leaving the institutional church and with the current tension on what to do with the LGBTQ community, I have not felt a desire to return to church. I'm tired of all the infighting and exclusion that goes on. It just seems like a waste of time and energy. I was hesitant to write any of this down because I am seeking to be a positive, loving person. I do care very deeply about social justice, but I want to be a force that is driven by love. I do believe that the people in the Quaker community share this desire to do justice and love mercy. It is my belief that it is the institution that gets in the way. As I understand it, this was Jesus' dilemma as well. He seemed to love people but had great difficulties with institutions. And then this from uh, an unprogrammed friend. Perhaps compared to other Christian denominations today, Quakers still offer a prophetic critique of our culture's militarism, materialism, individualism, lack of community, environmental destruction, injustice, etc. We pride ourselves on being prophetic Pride is definitely part of our shadow side. In reality, however, across the branches, friends today are very deeply embedded in our culture. Therefore, our prophetic critique of the culture is rather weak. Similarly, Quakers are proud of our close connection with God and Christ within. In reality, however, we are very caught up in the busyness and outward orientation of our culture and as a community, we only rarely are only rarely attending to the divine inward presence and guidance in a humble, wholehearted way. So I think her, her comments a good place to end and to think about. And we do have some time now for some questions and comments. Sorry I kind of rushed through this, but I just had to present it quickly, so I wanted to make sure we had some time for a little conversation. So maybe, Mark, you can kind of be the... Facilitator for that.
0: I'm just curious about the last two quotes. If you can tell us um, what part of the country they're from, or um, do you not want to? Yeah,
1: well, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, the first one actually was from Northwest Yearly Meeting. Okay. Uh, the second one was a friend that I met in Indiana who was actually from Philadelphia, and she's part of Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. She sees herself more as um, a conservative friend, though. And, She's very Christ-centered. Other thoughts, questions?
0: I'm struck at the uh, similarities in our community Mm -hmm. and how that especially economically, uh, is a barrier to being more open in in our culture. um, Are uh, those in poverty, um, are there Quaker meetings, I assume not, within uh, groups of migrant workers? Are, how is Quaker, how does Quaker Mm -hmm. have a presence in Um, in that community?
1: Well, I think that Quakers as a whole have always felt compassion towards those on the margins. But most Quaker meetings, and I've been to a lot of them across the country and even in England, are made up of middle class white people. I mean, that is the reality. We have very few uh, African Americans within our churches. we are starting Hispanic churches, and Reedwood has Hispanic ministry, and they have um, kind of, they, they join together for part of their worship, but then they separate, and they have their own worship in Spanish. Um, Quakers have not done a very good job of being inclusive for all classes, and in looking at particularly the history of, of London Yearly Meeting, British Quakers, they became very well-to-do, and In the 19th century, when they were still very evangelical, they would start ministries among the working class. But they would always be separate from their own meetings. And they never integrated the two. And eventually, all of the the working class were never representative among Quakers, most of the Quakers and in England now, they're shrinking. They're very small, but they're, they're mostly professional people. They're kind of intellectuals, and they have very few people that are from working class or poor. Even though they, they want to be inclusive, and all of their um, ideology and all of their, their philosophy and theology is very inclusive, it just isn't happening. Uh, and that's the reality. And There's probably a lot of reasons for that, kind of sociological reasons that could be explored and... Um, and, and last month, also, I talked about how African Americans weren't particularly welcome, even though Quakers wanted, they wanted them to be free from slavery, but they didn't welcome them into their congregations, and they actually had black pews where the blacks could sit. I don't know if you were here last week, yes. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the, the dark, dark side of, of our history. Yeah. And that was not just Quakers, but that was in most churches, too. But, but Quakers should have known better. <laughs>
0: Um, I've, I've looked at this history of women's suffrage in particular mm-hmm. asking a different question, which was um, most, why were Quakers overwhelmingly represented in the mm-hmm. leadership and in the ranks far out of proportion to our percentage in the population? That, that is true. And I think if you go back to the basic principles of most religions and, and take those in, ignoring what's developed in the hierarchy then you do find the support, and obviously a lot of the women did. And and the other thing that was interesting to me was the the parallel strains in the suffrage movement of the work within the system and then the rabble rousers who chained themselves to mm-hmm. the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And and the leader of that was a Quaker woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't remember her name. Helen Stevens? Is that? Yeah. Anyway, so it, there was a certain sort of breakout mentality that was supported by, not,
1: not perhaps mm-hmm. by the
0: hierarchy of the meetings, but by the, the basic tenets.
1: Right. I think they were definitely inspired by Quaker principles. That's why they were able to do that. They also had, well, they were, they were um, more practiced in speaking exactly. publicly, you see, because right. they, they did preach. And so they did have a public ministry. And they also had their own meetings that they would lead. You know, they had their separate women's meetings, which seems right. kind of sexist, yeah, but actually it was kind of, a, a create kind of a, a leadership development for, for Quaker women because yeah. they, could, they could run their own meetings. They couldn't be part of the, the main administrative body, but they could run their own meetings. And so they learned a lot of leadership skills. And, and many of these women, when they joined, like with the women's rights movement, they used a lot of um, principles from organizing that they had learned as Quakers. So they brought that into the movement. So they did play a large part in the women's suffrage movement and certainly were yeah. represented far uh, beyond what one would expect for the small numbers. Quakers were not very large by the 19th century. Yeah. So and, that, that's true. And were there voices within some of these crazy meetings
0: that were so deeply divided or, or hierarchical that were challenging that?
1: There were some, yeah. But, just as with abolition though, they were the minority voices. They were not the majority. They were drummed out.
0: (laughs) We have time for one more question or comment? Oh.
1: Maybe two. (laughs) Maybe two. Short questions.
0: So the preceding conversation got me thinking about equity and inclusion. And so now I'm wondering within the, Quaker movement across our country, are there any um, rising tides to bring more diversity, equity, and inclusion into the meetings, or is this another place where Quakerism is lagging kind of behind society?
1: There are definitely movements for that, for sure, Um, and there's a lot of critique about Quakers and colonialism and the whole missionary movement and how we not only brought the gospel, but we also brought colonialism and imperialism. So there's been a lot of critique. I mean, a lot of Quakers are now kind of looking at their history and and trying to analyze it and see what can we do different, what can we learn from our history to to make things different. Um, And I think that one of the interesting aspects is that in the 19th century, the evangelical movement, which was kind of the revival movement, actually did reach out to the poor and there were a lot more, I mean it was much more inclusive than Quakerism as a whole. And evangelicals in the 19th century, many of them were part of the leadership of abolition. And so that's kind of reversed too. And it's just so interesting to look at history and see the cycles, how a movement can kind of be in advance at one particular time and then can kind of regress, and you can certainly see that with the evangelical movement, and you see that as the pattern in Quakers until we advance and then we regress, and it's just kind of a cycle.